0: All right. Well, good morning, Hope Astoria. It's so good to be back together again. Uh, Before we begin, I want to extend a a huge uh, word of praise and gratitude to our tech team. Um, I won't name them by name because some of them do not like to be praised in public. Um, So you can find out who those people are uh, when you come back next Sunday. But they have been grinding behind the scenes to make this happen. So I'm just so appreciative of just this opportunity, uh, even as we prepare to gather next week in person, that we can still have this means of staying connected and partaking of God's word and worship together. As Pastor Denise announced, we are continuing our sermon series, Authentic Faith. And we've been studying the book of James, and we're going to pick up where we last left off last week. We're going to begin in verse 4, and we're going to go down to verse 8. James chapter 1, verse 4 to 8. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us, meet us now as we come to your word. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of worshiping you, of being in your presence, of learning from your mind and your heart as we study scripture Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus, magnify him, reveal him in a fresh and living way to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I've been thinking lately of the concept, which perhaps you've heard of it, but if you haven't heard of it, you definitely have experienced it. It's called planned obsolescence. What does that mean? That means that in our economy there are things that are just basically planned by the creators of whether it's a phone or a car or an appliance. When they create it, they plan at a certain point to make this product obsolete. Now the tricky thing is is it's not that that product or that thing no longer has life in it. It's not like it could still, it's not like it has to be put away. In fact, with some care, with some touch-ups, with some updates, it could probably continue well into the future. But because our economy is built on us buying and continuously buying, you know it. You buy a phone and at a certain point it begins to lag and run behind or your TV doesn't just look the way it used to, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that, you and I barely have the experience in our society of seeing something run its course, seeing something fulfill its full potential, whether it's a product or, in many ways, people. We live in a culture that values youth. And as a result of that, older people, seasoned, wise people are not always given the, tab- the place at the table that they deserve, the respect that they have, because we don't value seeing something or someone run their course, contribute everything, come to a place of completion. We see that in our city in different ways. I actually met someone recently that was a longtime New Yorker, moved to Atlanta, has been there for many years, and before they left, the Van Wick Expressway was still being updated and fixed, and I had bad news to tell them that it's still not fully done. And so we live in a city that doesn't give us the pleasure of seeing things come into completion very often. There's always this half-baked kind of incomplete feeling It's been said New York has two seasons, winter and construction. And right now we're in the middle of the construction season. Roads are being pulled up. There's work being done everywhere. And even New York itself never feels complete. It never feels finalized. It's always being updated and renovated Why I begin there is because in the very first words that we read in this letter that James is writing to Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus that have, because of persecution, have been spread across the then known world. And as we read before, he grounds them in the historical confession of Jesus being Lord. And the Christian life is us conforming to that confession in our everyday life, and the book of James is an essence, an application of what it looks like for daily life to continuously be conforming to the lordship of Jesus. But we also looked last week at the idea of counting it all joy in trials, and how on the surface that didn't make sense. It's kind of jarring to think that James would be writing to Christians that might lose their lives, that are facing the risk of death just because of their faith in Jesus, and he's telling them count it all joy when you encounter whatever trials you're facing. It's jarring to think what James was trying to tell them, but we unpacked that last week and kind of got an understanding of what that might look like. But today, continuing in this vein of people that are conforming to the lordship of Jesus in the context of suffering, struggle, and trial, James says something we should pay note of. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, the verses prior, he says, when we count it all joy, when we go through trials, James says that what that develops in us is perseverance, grit. You don't give up. We talked last week about the idea of don't give up before your miracle happens from God. God is at work. We believe in his redemptive intervention in life. That's what allows us To have joy. We're not crazy. We haven't lost touch with reality. But our reality is that God redeems all things. And so therefore, in the midst of trial and suffering, we can count it all joy. And when we do that, perseverance develops. But James goes further. He says, perseverance, let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. The goal, the final product, when it's run its course, your life and mine, God's not planning any planned obsolescence. He is engineering our life to run its course, to come to a completion. And James is telling us the completion of God's work in your character and mine in the midst of suffering is to be made mature to be made complete. I wanna highlight something that perhaps you have noted this, you're aware of it intuitively, even if you haven't put language to it. I think what I'll say right now, I'm not gonna get much disagreement on, and that is not everyone is growing. People can experience the same trials, though we experience them differently, we can go through similar circumstances, live during similar periods of life, undergo uh, kind of similar stresses. We're all, uh, as New Yorkers, we all live through the pandemic this season, and even though we experience it differently, the truth is not all of us grew in our character. Everyone's being tested. Let's be clear on that. Even the person that you think has the most comfortable life and their life just seems like uh, so far removed from suffering and trial and difficulty, please don't judge the book by its cover. Everyone is being tested. Not everyone's being tested the same. Everyone's going through trials and tests, but not everyone is being matured by the testing they face because not everyone is letting the testing mature them. And so James is pointing out something that we would do well to pay attention to. For them, the the people he was writing to, they were all going through this incredible trial. They've been uprooted from their homes. They're fleeing for their lives because of persecution. Their faith in Jesus didn't lead to a more comfortable life. Actually, their faith in Jesus led to challenge and difficulty. And to them, he's saying, let this perseverance that's being developed in you come to full circle where you are made mature and complete. But how does this work? How are we made mature and complete through testing that produces perseverance and perseverance that has the end goal, the completion of us being made mature and complete? I want to make this as accessible as possible for you and I to walk away from this text today and you see it show up tomorrow morning when you go to work, when you're interacting with your family, when you're going shopping, when, when the practical day-to-day moments. And much of the book of James is very granular in that way. It talks about the minute details of life and what our faith in Jesus, how it impacts and comes to bear on all of these things, our relationships, our speech, The way we view others, it's a comprehensive, wisdom-filled book. And how this work of us being tested, finding joy in those tests, perseverance being developed, perseverance leading to maturity and completion, how does this show up in our life? Let me give you some examples. Sometimes testing looks like going through difficult circumstances. That's what these people were going through, a challenging circumstance. I think it's important to note that faith in Jesus never came with the promise that you would not be tested. I think sometimes that message has been obscured, and some preachers and some churches have even offered that lie, that faith in Jesus is going to lead you to perpetual increase in comfort, uh, peace, wealth health, no struggle, no challenge, but that actually isn't what the scriptures describe the journey of someone who confesses Jesus as Lord. You go through test, and sometimes it's going through a difficult season, a difficult circumstance, but sometimes it's dealing with difficult people. James combines these meanings these meetings with the word he uses for testing. The word that he uses for testing actually implies the connection of dealing with difficult circumstances as well as dealing with difficult people what happens when we are tested in those ways we are matured as Christ strengthens us to bear with difficult people and to bear up under difficult circumstances here's something we have to establish and be very clear You and I will not grow in perseverance. Perseverance will not lead us to maturity unless we go through testing. And in that testing, whether it's the testing of difficult circumstances or difficult people, it's through that process when we encounter Jesus in the midst of the testing, and he bears us up, he provides us strength, he gives us perspective, his grace moves us on, that's when perseverance begins to have a work in us. And it gets us closer and closer to this idea of maturity. Now to be clear, to be mature, what James is talking about, to be mature is not perfection. It's not flawlessness. To be mature, from James's perspective, is not that you don't have weak moments or struggles, but to be mature, It's the state of having complete and utter trust in the one who is carrying you through the test. James is saying that you and I could be matured, that Jesus wants us, wants to mature us. And the things he uses to mature us are our test. So I want you to take a mental catalog, create kind of a list right now. And realize that the circumstances that are testing you, and even the people that are testing you, are the instruments of Jesus in your life to mature you. Jesus is trying to mature you and I through the testing experiences that are coming our way. So maybe you weren't aware of it, but that circumstance that you want so badly out of your life that person, that relationship you want so badly out of your life, what if you had a different perspective and realized that what if Jesus is using that challenge, this moment, that circumstance, not to make you more comfortable, but to make you more Christ-like, to transform our character? Remember one writer, he talked about this, this perspective of looking at the challenges, the challenging relationships, to look at it as... Saint makers. thought it was an interesting concept. He said these things make people into saints. And what he was talking about is that this, this very idea of God using these challenging circumstances to sanctify us. Maybe you didn't realize this, but you actually, if you are professing faith in Jesus, if he is Lord in your life, if he has brought you from death to life, you are his follower, you are his child, The scriptures call you a saint. You didn't realize that. You've been living your whole life as a Christian this whole time, and you didn't realize that we could respectfully call you Saint Joe, Saint Margaret, because what scriptures talk about why you and I are called saints is because we are sanctified ones. We are those that have been set apart for the purposes of God. We have been set apart for relationship with God. So that's one idea of being a saint. The other idea of being a saint is that you and I, by virtue of being set apart, we're being sanctified, we're being cleansed, our character is being changed. And the thing that that changes our character are the saint-making people and circumstances in our life. If you've ever cried out to God, God, give me strength. He answered that prayer by bringing opposition in your life. You can't develop strength apart from opposition. If you ever said, "God, give me patience." He answered that prayer by putting you in circumstances that would push the limits of your patience. God has brought saint-making people and circumstances into all of our lives. And that's how he sanctifies our character through difficult people, difficult circumstances. Those things are your saint-makers. I know my kids are watching, and I want you to know, Hernandez children, Daddy loves you. However, Daddy also sees you as my saint-makers. And I'm your saint-maker. What I mean by that is that my children in my life and me in their life is one of the main tools that God uses in, in each other's lives, to sanctify us. It's through the rigors of parenting and the trials and the exhaustion and and the complexity and the many conversations and the correction and the love and the application of grace and the guidance and all those things. And it's also when I lose my temper, when, I, when I'm a poor example and I have to own it and apologize and ask for forgiveness. It's when we, we, we pray with each other even though we don't want to be around each other at that moment. It's all of these things combined that forms a saint-making dynamic in our home. What's making you a saint right now? What is Jesus using to create perseverance in you? What trials are coming your way that he's calling you to consider them all joy, pure joy? And if you do so, perseverance will begin to develop, and if perseverance has its its finished work, you will be made complete. You and I mature in Christ through the rubric of difficult circumstances. We don't mature during times of peace, when there's no resistance, when there's no struggle. You don't learn to love people in easy circumstances. You learn to love people through trial, and difficulty, and testing. What is making you a saint? Identify that and realize when those things, when Jesus uses those things to have their full work, look at what James says will happen. You shall be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's an amazing play on words because after he says that when you let perseverance complete you and mature you, that you will not lack anything. Look at what verse 5 says, the very next verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, he, he, he links these two unrelated ideas with the concept of lack. First, he says, if you let perseverance have its work, you're going to be mature. Complete, and you're going to lack nothing. But then he goes, connecting with this concept of lack, and he says, if you lack wisdom, you can ask God in the midst of trial and suffering and testing. If you find yourself needing wisdom, lacking it, James says you can ask God, and he will give you wisdom liberally, freely. He won't withhold it. You know what's interesting about that sequence of thought? And we talked about this the first sermon that the book of James has these kind of... It almost feels like stop and go when you're driving. Because there's this like small group of thoughts and then it's not always sequitur to the next thought. It's compact with all this wisdom. and, And so we go from trials make you complete if you let perseverance work in you. And now he's saying when that happens you won't lack anything. But now he says if you lack wisdom. And I think one potential connection between what James said prior to this moment is that trials, what they definitely do, is trials reveal the gaps in our understanding. When we go through trials, we become intimately aware of what we don't know, of what we didn't figure out, of what we can't move forward on without God's help have you ever been through a trial a challenging circumstances that absolutely revealed what you didn't know it exposed the things that you assumed were one way but you came to find out they were completely different in those moments James says if you find yourself lacking wisdom you can come to God and I want you to hear these words If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I want to pause there and highlight that this moment, these words, this invitation, screams the gospel. It screams the good news because what James is saying, anyone can ask for wisdom, and it won't be withheld. You won't have to meet a certain standard in order for you to receive the wisdom that God will give to you liberally. Anyone can ask. There's no test that's required that you pass. You don't have to have a certain standing. It didn't say only people that have let the the character be completed in them, only if you've met a certain uh, standard, check a certain box. No, anyone, whether you have your life together or not, whether you, you think you're growing from your trials or not, there's no qualifier. Anyone can ask for wisdom from God, and you will receive it. And again, it screams the gospel even more so because it says all that's required is that you fully believe. It says if you ask for wisdom, you have to believe. Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. This screams the gospel because James is highlighting this gospel truth that all are welcomed, all can come, no matter what you're going through. And Andrew earlier he alluded to this when he was leading in worship and it ministered to me. It doesn't matter what you're going through; you are welcomed at God's table. Whether you're struggling in in a myriad of ways, there is no shame in the presence of God. You are accepted by God through what Christ has done. He has made a way for us. And so we stand on the complete obedience of Jesus. His merit has been extended and credited to us. And so when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... The foundation of that bold invitation is what Christ has done. The reason why any of us can come to God, regardless of what we're going through, ask for wisdom and believe he'll give it to us is because of what Jesus has done for us. He's made a way for us to boldly, unapologetically bring our needs before God. I think it's important to just cement this even further. To identify this, our lack points us to the gospel. Any area of your life where you identify you are lacking, whether you're lacking in patience, whether you're lacking in in wisdom, whether you're lacking in love, when you encounter those lacks, it points us to the ever-sufficiency of the good news of Jesus. That what you lack, God has in abundance. What you lack, God will provide in abundance liberally on the basis of grace. You and I come to God with our lacks and he meets us in utter grace if we believe. But look at what James alludes to more. He describes the person who comes to God in faith asking for wisdom as someone who will receive but he also describes the person who won't receive wisdom as someone who won't mature and he describes them as a wave of the sea it's interesting language james says the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's tossed to and fro now you got to understand the imagery and and how kind of shorelines in the part of the world that James was writing from, very often the waves that kind of toss back and forth weren't waves that were happening at the shore, they were happening in the middle of the sea. Winds were chopping up waves and they were going back and forth and just, it was very turbulent. And when you read this, at first glance, we might get the impression that even the slightest ounce of doubt disqualifies you from receiving from God. The language on the surface is, if you doubt, you won't receive. You're like a wave of the sea. But actually, when we get into it, we find out that that's not what James is implying. I think it's interesting to to note that because in my experience, many Christians live like this. They live as if God can't handle their doubts. So they deny that they have them. And they're wound very tightly because of that. But what James is alluding to, he's not saying that it's the presence of a doubt here or there that would disqualify someone from receiving wisdom, but he's actually saying it's the presence of chronic doubt that James describes as being a double-minded person. And in the original language, the word double-minded means to have two souls. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. James says, no matter how broken you are, no matter what's going on, if you, if you lack wisdom, you can come to God. He'll give it to you liberally. So it's not your, your faults, your struggles that would ever disqualify you from receiving from God. But he says there's one thing that could disqualify you. And he says this one thing makes you like a wave of the sea, and that is this idea of being double-minded, of having two souls and in fact, the reason Jane says this person is unstable in all their ways is not because they have a doubt here and there, but because their soul is divided. Can I tell you that one of the reasons trials come our way is to undivide our soul? When trials come your way and my way, it's an invitation to be all in or all out. You can't be ambivalent when trials come. You can't have one foot in, one foot out when trials come. You either have to hold on or you're going to let go when trials come. And what James is saying that often our greatest struggle is not the trials we're going through. Our greatest struggle is the division in our soul. That our hearts are divided. That we haven't fully pledged full allegiance and submission to King Jesus because we're still pledging allegiance to King self. Trials confront that. Trials expose who you and I truly serve. Trials expose whether we're living for comfort or whether we're living for Christ. Trials expose whether we truly love people or we're using them. Trials expose if our faith is authentic or it's just surface. They expose the divisions in our hearts. So you get this beautiful yet challenging picture of what Jesus is doing in us through trials. If you want to know what Jesus is doing in us through trials, James gives us this powerful image. He is undividing our souls. When you go through suffering and challenge, he's detaching and disconnecting your soul from other allegiances, from the allegiance to this world. You know, one of the most powerful things is a follower of Jesus who recognizes this is not our true home and doesn't live with their hands clutching and holding on to things as if we will carry these things into the next life. One of the most powerful things is when a follower of Jesus lives with open hands and says, none of this is mine. I'm a steward. I'm a manager at best. But until our souls get healed from being divided, very often our allegiances can be split. I remember hearing about Michelangelo, the the artist, and they asked him, his process of how he made one of his greatest works, the David. And his response was, now you got to imagine, it starts off this massive piece of marble and it ends up into this amazing piece of art. When they asked him, how'd you do it? And his response was, I chiseled everything that didn't look like David. And I think about That quote often when I'm going through difficulty, when I see people in our church, people that I know, going through difficulty, I think to myself, Jesus is chiseling everything that doesn't look like him. As we go through the furnace of affliction and we discover our lack, our insufficiencies, we're positioned at that moment to meet Jesus and experience his transformative grace And it's in trials, through trials, that Jesus is teaching us to believe nothing but the gospel. It's trials that expose where we truly believe the good news and where we're fully not convinced. Trials expose that. In trials, Jesus strips the division in our souls, the things that don't fully trust God. Right now, some of us, that's the greatest struggle. If we can pinpoint it and be honest, it's not the challenges, it's what the, the position of faith in those challenges. Are we in a place where we're trusting God, regardless of the results? In my journey with Jesus, I have often trusted God, but my trust has been pegged to specific results. I'm trusting you for this. And when that didn't pan out the way I thought, I realized I wasn't trusting God. In many ways, I was trying to use God to get what I hoped I should have. But it's only through difficulty where we are put in a position where we have to face when we truly trust God or whether we're just using God to get to a certain means or an end. I know this is challenging. Because many of us, I've been there, we've been made to believe that Jesus, that to follow Jesus is a journey toward increasing comfort, power, control, pleasure. But actually what we're discovering just in these first few verses of James is that to follow Jesus is not about increasing our comfort, it's about transforming our character. What Jesus is after is transforming the you that no one else sees but him. The you that exists when all the screens are off, when no one's around. We've had a crash course encounter with that version of ourselves during this season of extreme isolation. And if you're like me and you're like many others, you probably discovered that you were far more broken than you ever imagined. And yet Jesus loves you, the real you, not the facade you, not the pretentious you, the real you. And he meets the reality of who you are in order to transform you to look like him. How does this happen? In the midst of trial and suffering and challenge, As you and I increasingly return to him, center ourselves in him, confess when we stray but come back to him, lean on him. When we lack wisdom, we call on him. When we realize our souls are divided, we run to him. When we meet him in that place of realness and truth, we can be transformed, not at the surface level but at the core of our being. Jesus loves you as you are, but he refuses to leave you in that state. He's transforming you and I more and more into the image of himself. That's what the Father is doing. As we close, as Andrew comes to lead us in closing time of worship, I want to invite you Again, to identify those saint-makers in your life, what's the instrument of God right now in your life that's being used to bring perseverance, that's testing your heart, that's exposing your divided soul, that's revealing the depth or the lack of depth of our love for others. Identify those saint-makers and accept them as the tools in God's hand to transform us. Jesus, I pray for us as a people as we come to you now. May we meet you as you're transforming us, releasing our divided soul, renewing us as only you can, Jesus. Let's worship together at this time.